0: Hello, and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. The southern border is an obsession. The so-called invasion of migrants from Central America, the Caribbean, and beyond is a major driver of political debate in our country. As we head into the next electoral cycle, President Biden is touting the dramatically dropping numbers of detentions, while his Republican competitors decry the coming apocalypse if the migrants are not pushed back from the border. But beyond the political ping pong, there's a deeper historical reality. The United States' success as a country, the consolidation of democracy, its ability to conquer a continent, and then project massive power across the world, is due in part to its relationship with Latin America. At no time in the more than 200 years of this loose alliance between the United States and the Latin American republics, has the U.S. faced a military threat from its southern neighbors. Moreover, the influx of immigrant labor has enriched this country, obviously economically, but also culturally and militarily as well. As the polymath author of the classic book, Guns, Germs and Steel, Jared Diamond explained, geography is destiny. And the United States' ultra-secure southern border, unlike the borders of France or Germany, for example, who have gone to war over and over again, has created an unprecedented multi-century history of relative peace. Today, I explore this legacy. The long, sometimes torturous, but historically crucial relationship between American democracy and Latin America with Benjamin Gadon. Benjamin is director of the Wilson Center's Latin American program. He's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. Benjamin is a former South America director on the National Security Council at the White House, and he also served at the State and Treasury Departments focus on Latin America. He's a former Fulbright Scholar in Uruguay and earned a Ph.D. in foreign affairs from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Here's my conversation with Benjamin Gedan. Benjamin Godin, welcome to The X-Ray. Thanks so much. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much, Benjamin. And, and let's start with the, the meta question. Why should Americans care about Latin America?
1: There's probably no region in the world that more directly affects the health and security of the United States than Latin America. This is the United States neighborhood. This is where the United States does most of its trading. This is the source for the United States of most of the migration. This is a place where many Americans have personal and cultural
0: connections, historical connections. This is the region that's most
1: directly strategic for U.S.
0: interests. And when you look at the evolving relationship between the United States and Latin America, which obviously it's about 200 years old, more or less, um, how do you see things today? There's tremendous amount of criticism among Latin American countries that the U.S. is looking elsewhere, doesn't care. The whole metaphor of the backyard is, of course, quite painful for Latin Americans because it's so insulting. But uh, ultimately, you can forget what's going on in your backyard, right? And that's sort of what they're saying, even as they're flirting, uh, maybe more than flirting, with China at this point. How do you see that relationship balance at this point?
1: This is a chronic criticism of the United States that the U.S. government doesn't pay enough attention to Latin America. And fundamentally, it's usually true. I think it's a legitimate criticism. Mostly the reason is that Latin America is just not crisis prone in the way some other parts of the world are. Fortunately, the United States is not at war in Latin America and has not been for quite a while. Latin American countries themselves are not at war with one another, as occurs in other parts of the world. And because the economic and political relationships between the United States and this region more or less function, it becomes easy to be distracted by other parts of the world, to put political attention and U.S. resources elsewhere, and not to address the needs and opportunities in the Western Hemisphere.
0: And what would happen if the U.S. I mean, there's so much nativism happening right now. Isolationism feels like we're having 1937, 38 all over again. And people say, you know what, let's just seal the border. Forget about those people. Why not? Why not forget about all those people? I mean, why can't we just seal the border and let them do you know, whatever miseries are happening in Latin America are theirs and not ours? Why is that not a legitimate point of view? So even if
1: you wanna set aside the humanitarian and moral considerations, you simply can't seal the border, right? The geography commands attention to the challenges in Latin America. And in the absence of U.S. attention, you'll have the kinds of migration crises that you see today, not only at the U.S. Southwest border, but throughout Latin America, but fundamentally the unaddressed challenges in places like Haiti and Venezuela, in the northern countries of Central America, redound upon the United States very directly and in very disruptive ways, ways that are disruptive logistically to our management of the border. And if you don't trust me, just ask any of the governors in the border states, but also that have really, I think,
0: negative domestic political consequences here as well. And so let's turn to China. China is now identified by the administration, certainly by Congress, and, and possibly by many Americans as the single biggest threat to American global leadership, or however one wants to express that. But obviously, we're in a, a competitive situation with China. Tremendous amount of anxiety over what could happen in Taiwan, what could be the trigger for a war in the Pacific, uh, you know, quite dramatic. China is making huge inroads in Latin America. It's now the number one trading partner for multiple countries in in Latin America. It is also expanding its security footprint, providing assistance, uh, financial assistance in particular, but other assistance to places like Venezuela. Some people say that without China, Maduro would have fallen already. I don't know, maybe that's an exaggeration. But nevertheless, obviously the Chinese see their penetration of Latin America as a critical component of this competitive relationship. So how should Americans think about China in Latin America?
1: It's clear the United States in a bipartisan way is experiencing a great deal of anxiety about global competition with China, the mismatch between U.S. democratic values and the Chinese political system and China's ability through building these overseas economic and political relationships to gain diplomatic and strategic benefits at the U.S. expense. There's probably no more compelling example than in Latin America, given the speed and scale that China has revolutionized its relationships in this region in just about two decades, the United States had become very comfortable in the Western Hemisphere as the only partner, as the sort of go-to historical country that would be the place to provide capital for companies to be there investing, to be buying goods from the region and selling goods in the region, to be taking advantage of opportunities and to be affecting politics and shaping the way countries conceive of their national values and political systems. Again, this is a region obviously colonized originally by Spain with a big presence early in the post-colonial period by England. But in modern history, it's been dominated by one hegemonic power in the Western hemisphere. That was the United States. And I think there's a real discomfort now in the United States in recognizing that there is this other actor. And very unfortunately for the United States, it is an actor that is hostile to US interests. And that pursues its own interests in a way that's logical from the perspective of Beijing, but prejudicial from the perspective of Washington. And so, you know, look across the board. You've listed some of the metrics. For the increase in China's presence in the region, but it's really um, in almost any meaningful category. Trade, it's the biggest trading partner in South America, vacuuming up most of the commodities produced, including copper and iron ore, um, soy, and and down the list. It is the place putting in most significant investment for major infrastructure projects, for energy production and transmission. It is the country that is the go-to partner diplomatically in many cases because of all of those economic engagements. And yes, it has gained soft power as well. It is providing scholarships to bring Latin American elites to China. It is doing more military training. Really, in every category that matters, China is outpacing the United States throughout Latin America.
0: And so what does that mean? I mean, should we care about that? What's the practical implication for the American people? I mean, do we care? Why should we care? So there's
1: a few different ways to view it, and some of them are more benign. I think at least initially, and and to some degree even today, there are mostly commercial explanations for why China is in Latin America. It has a lot of labor that it needs to find opportunities for, and it can't always find them at home. So it likes to have overseas projects for its own workers. It has what's known as excess capacity. It sometimes just produces more materials than it can use domestically. But to justify this authoritarian system, it needs to keep the economy humming. And so it tries to subsidize overseas projects in places like Latin America in order to find a home for this excess capacity. Steel is a classic example. It wants its companies to operate overseas and it wants markets. It wants training before it can enter Europe and the United States in a big way. And so Huawei technology for cell phones and other industries, car industries, will will sell in places like Latin America. So I think this gives you kind of a flavor of some, I wouldn't say, the most benign explanations. That China is there as an economic competitor. Maybe that's not great news for U.S. companies, but it's not a strategic risk to the United States. But I will say there are other ways to view the implications of China's presence, and they are more concerning for the United States.
0: Benjamin, we can also take a non-benign interpretation of China's participation in Latin America. Most recently, the finance minister of Argentina uh, was in China, hat in hand, essentially begging for money to keep the economy from exploding before their national elections in October. and. One of the big fears that has emerged is that China has a base of some sort, not quite clear what it is in southern Argentina. Uh, There's also now reports that China has a uh, listening post, whatever that actually means, unclear, in Cuba. So obviously there are some strategic risks for the U.S. beyond the commercial aspect of this. How do you see it?
1: There are absolutely national security considerations when you consider China's role in places like Argentina. And I'm glad you asked about Argentina because I think it's an important case study for understanding how China engages in the region. If you'll permit me just, you know, 30 seconds of history, I think China and Latin America has been a big provider of infrastructure finance. It has given Beijing an enormous amount of political influence in a country that traditionally was not very close to China. Um, It is now, as you point out, a lender of last resort, trying to help bail out a government that's really falling to pieces economically. This gives China even bigger relationship and even more leverage over Argentina. And it has used that leverage in some important cases in ways that are less benign. One of the examples is a space station in the Neuquen province of, of Patagonia in Argentina that's run by the People's Liberation Army. It's run by the Chinese military on sovereign Argentine territory. The United States is very uncomfortable with this arrangement. The Argentine government appears to have very little access to the facility, and there's very little transparency about how it operates. There's now a conversation about China building a base in the city of Ushuaia mm-hmm. in in southern Argentina, near Antarctica, in a very strategic sea lane. And so yet again, we see China able to leverage the influence that it has over Argentina because of its massive purchases of Argentine farm output and because it has bailed out the Argentine government over the years. And so Argentina is very reluctant to take sides in great power competition. And frankly, if it had to take sides right now, it might take China's side, Mm -hmm. given what China has provided over the years and given the relative absence of the United States at these moments of extreme vulnerability in Argentina.
0: Yeah. I mean, I follow the region closely, not obviously as closely as you do, but every once in a while there's, I'm not going to mention his name, but an official of of the administration that travels to Latin America. He's not the most senior guy uh, in the U.S. government. It feels a little bit like I'm exaggerating for a fact, but basically a mid-level guy. Meanwhile, China is building a space station in Argentina. I mean, it, it seems like uh, they're coming to the fight with uh, guns and we're coming to the fight with, uh, I don't know, <laughs> with tickle toys or whatever. So what can the U.S. do? I mean, is it too late? I mean, is this a situation where, for example, the U.S. could step up and literally save Argentina from its own collapse and thereby win this, it's not a war, but this conflict of influence? Or what should the U.S. be doing?
1: I often say that there's no great power competition occurring in Latin America because the U.S. isn't competing. Right. Um, and I, I truly think that that's what has occurred. Yes, you're correct. There could be more high level of attention. President Biden could be in the region. You could see Secretary Blinken taking another trip. I don't think he's he's meaningfully traveled in South America, you know, for the last at least a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually requires much more than that, because what China has done in the region is place enormous amounts of capital in a region that is very. Capital scarce, that is desperate for new motors of economic growth, that needs better ports and railroads, it needs better highways, it needs the capacity to have a more dynamic economy. And for that, the West, the United States, its European allies, you know, friends like Japan and South Korea and India even need to put real capital in the region if we're going to be an ally that is seen as an alternative to China. And right now, we're simply not doing it. I'll give you an example. There was a lot of expectations last year when the United States hosted the Summit of the Americas. Mm -hmm. This is a meeting. It happens about every three years of all the presidents in the Western Hemisphere. This was seen as the moment where the United States would really put something meaningful on the table. We brought everyone to Los Angeles, at least every president who was willing to participate. We didn't invite the authoritarian leaders. And fundamentally, the disappointment of the conference was that we weren't announcing major financing of infrastructure in this region. That's what the region wants above all, even more than high-level visits, even more than attention from the State Department and the National Security Council. The United States needs to be a partner at a time when the economies in the region are really fragile with some very dangerous political effects throughout Latin America.
0: And then I I wanna, because I know this is an area of of massive concern for uh, most Americans, I think, which is Central America is the source of most of the migrants who we know objectively are escaping terrible humanitarian situations with gang violence and, and rapes being a common occurrence and, and really very weak governments that are unable unwilling to consolidate their power and essentially control the situation in their own countries. There's an obvious solution to this, which is not a wall in the border, (laughs) but is actually creating conditions in those countries so that people don't have to leave. I mean, this is very basic at some level. At the same time, the idea that the U.S. would launch a Marshall Plan for Central America makes people queasy in the US for reasons that are, you know, not rational, they're emotional primarily, but they're real reasons because people won't move forward. From your perspective, as someone who looks at this problem on an ongoing basis, is there a solution? Is there something the US can do beyond these very symbolic speeches and a billion dollars here for Guatemala? I mean, this is pocket change for a problem that is systemic to this region. Is there a solution that can actually contribute to stopping the flow of migrants desperate to find a better place to live?
1: The conditions in northern Central America are absolutely horrifying from a humanitarian perspective in terms of the security conditions, the poverty, the impacts of climate change that have even worsened the ability of farmers to provide for their families. You have, you know worse drought in the so-called dry corridor of Central America and parts of the region. You have more frequent and more severe storms. You have endemic corruption. You have leadership that is becoming more authoritarian in places like El Salvador and Guatemala. In Guatemala, where there's an election this year, you've had three of the most competitive candidates excluded from running mid-campaign. In El Salvador, you've had more than a year of constitutional rights suspended and a brutal crackdown on criminal gangs. You have conditions that are just as bad or worse in Haiti and Venezuela, which mm-hmm. I should note are also major sources of migration to the United States as right. well. Um, but focusing on, on Northern Central America, I agree. I think the United States has been unwilling to put in a fraction of the resources needed to address this long list of daunting problems that I've just outlined. And that's just the beginning of what's needed to improve education and healthcare and provide decent lives. If you think about the risks and costs of the journey to the United States, you begin to understand why people are leaving and the scale of the problems they face. It is not an easy decision. Right There is, of course, a relatively close, much more prosperous country, the United States, that is pulling people from the region, but really they're being pushed out of their homes and villages by the conditions there, and nothing will stop them unless that we address what's happening in their countries and address it at the kind of scale we marshal in other parts of the world. If you look at the resources we're putting into Ukraine, And I think they're justified. You'll see what the United States is capable of when we decide there is an issue that's in U.S. national interest to address. And we've simply never done that in Central America. I'll give maybe three explanations, although I don't think any of them are really compelling from a policy pragmatic perspective. Number one is foreign aid is unpopular. That's true in general. Mm -hmm. Um, If in any survey of the United States, you know, it's vastly exaggerated in people's minds, how much we actually spend (laughs) abroad. And people just see, understandably, problems in the United States that are equally worthy of U.S. spending. Number two, we're completely distracted in the way we discuss migration. There is a, a very partisan element to those conversations that leads to debates that are very short term focused that are very focused on how we manage the border itself, the logistics of it, the number of judges that we have, whether there are disincentives, whether there are punishments, whether there are structures we could place on the border. And so all of that distracts from questions about so-called root causes, about why are people leaving and how can you get them to be safer and more prosperous in their homes. And then there's just the fact that these are big challenges and I don't wanna minimize what it would require to solve them. We don't have great partners in these countries. The challenges will require many, years, if not decades of steady U.S. commitment and resources. And so some people may shy away from addressing it because of how hard it would be to solve.
0: And I think, well, I I don't think I know. Uh, most Americans have no clue of the historical relationship between Central America and the U.S., especially in the 20th century. Where I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but it was a neo-colonial relationship of exploitation of natural resources, agricultural resources, and to be able to exploit those resources, the U.S. really contributed. And, and please correct me if I'm wrong in my reading of things to weakening the institutions of those countries because basically they were being stomped on, <laughs> and so they needed local elites who were willing to go along with that. I mean, is that I mean, are we still living the long-term effects of that kind of exploitation?
1: There are historical legacies that are relevant today, absolutely. Um, Some of the ways the Spanish colonial authorities structured these economies, they weren't structured in a way that encouraged education, that encouraged, you know, a broad, highly skilled workforce. It wasn't infrastructure that was designed for anything but exploiting natural resources there. You know, the United States, big companies that were there had similar economic and mercantilist motivations. They also weren't invested in national economic development or building democratic institutions. I think all that's true, but I would say that local elites and and political figures and parties bear a lot of responsibility. Right. Um, If you look at Panama, you look at Costa Rica, you look at Belize, even there's plenty of examples in this part of the world of countries that have pretty small markets that are subject to some of the same natural disasters, but that have managed to build functioning democracies and reasonably stable and prosperous economies. And what you have instead in countries like Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, above all, are really predatory elites, governments mm-hmm. that have prioritized their relationships with organized crime, with narcotics trafficking, relationships with criminal gangs that engage in horrific acts of violence and massive extortion of small businesses, instead of investing in building these societies
0: right. into prosperous, stable democracies. Well, you got to get the resources to buy your mansion in Miami somehow, and uh, you know maltreating your own people seems to be the formula. But let me conclude with a sort of a political question. During a trip, uh, I recently took to Uruguay, it was uh, an international investment conference. I got a chance to speak to a lot of people. And um, I was kind of poking at some uh, government ministers uh, from the region about you know why are you in bed with China, what you're in bed in China. And what I got back in general was, uh, you guys, meaning the U.S., can no longer tell us much about democracy or or what to do. Look what happened in January six. You know, essentially, the the sense I got was that the U.S.'s image was severely damaged by what essentially all Latin Americans could describe as an attempted coup. Even if here in the U.S. we keep using a euphemistic, oh, he tried to overturn an election. That no, was a coup d'etat. You know, he was overthrowing the Constitution, or tried anyway. How do you see that playing out? Is it something that's recoverable in the, in the short term, or has it completely damaged the U.S. brand in the region?
1: let me say this. I see the region as fairly neutral right now in great power competition. I think even countries that feel closer to the United States in terms of values, that feel like the U.S. democracy, for all its flaws, still shares more principles and structures with Latin American governments that, after all, were based on the U.S. Constitution, than is shared with China's authoritarian system. I think the region doesn't feel it has the luxury to choose. It is facing, you know, a Mm -hmm. decade of slow economic growth that's sometimes referred to as its second lost decade, the first being in the 1980s, um, with all the political consequences, the social instability that that has caused. So I think you'll find very few, if any, leaders in the region willing to choose because they don't feel like they have that luxury. Mm -hmm. That said, it means they're still willing to choose the United States as well. So the United States has plenty of opportunities to come in with meaningful resources and be a partner, maybe not the only partner, but a significant partner offering alternative sources of investment, finance, and other forms of, of collaboration with governments. And it's not only that. I think the United States really does still have some structural advantages. You're absolutely right. I think the U.S. democracy is not the model it once was. Like much of the region, the U.S. has suffered democratic democratic decline. Um, And I think, you know, when I travel in the region, I spoke to uh, at the Argentine Senate a few months ago before the U.S. midterm elections. I was asked questions about whether there'd be political violence in the U.S., and whether the United States you know, is at a place where losing candidates now will consistently reject the results and, and breed distrust in U.S. institutions. At the same time, it's U.S. movies people watch, it's U.S. schools elites children attend, it's U.S. healthcare, it's U.S. culture and music, it's it's the place people migrate to. Um, mm-hmm. You don't see a lot of cultural affinity with China, you don't see people who wanna emulate the Chinese political system, even though they're impressed by what they call China's speed, the idea of right. how quickly China was able to develop. So I actually would say the U.S. for now, and despite the flaws in U.S. democracy at the moment, still enjoys major cultural and historical advantages over China and Latin America and probably could recover much of its lost standing and credibility in the region if it put in resources. Will it elbow China out of the Americas? No. It would be foolhardy to think so. It would be naive. And there's no governments in the region that would want to close the door on China, even if the United States were more present. But I do think the United States has opportunities.
0: And so to conclude, are you optimistic about the U.S.-Latin American relationship?
1: I'm optimistic that there's now widespread recognition that the United States has real competition in the Western Hemisphere, and that that creates strategic vulnerabilities for the United States. It's not easy to build those kind of consensuses, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the United States right now, despite polarization and division on most issues, I think the political class right now sees a need for a bigger U.S. presence in Latin America. That leads me to feel a bit optimistic, whether we can marshal the resources to actually compete is another question. And there I do have my doubts. But but I am encouraged to see both political parties, both in Congress, in the White House, in the thought community, recognizing this challenge and recognizing that there is some urgency in stepping up.
0: All right, Benjamin Gooden, Thank you so much for joining The X-Ray. I really appreciate your time today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you. While most Americans would be surprised to learn that the United States is effectively allied with most of Latin America, this misunderstood relationship has been one of the most valuable and underappreciated strengths of American democracy. And as we head into the third century of this crucial alliance, we must recognize, as Jared Diamond noted, that geography is indeed destiny for the Americas. I want to thank Benjamin Gadan for joining me today, and I want to thank the Issue 1 production team, Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Rene Pineda. And I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. For more information on this podcast, check out thexray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Issue 1.